Tonight we come together to explore the emotion of fear in the context of meditation. How wonderful and rare it is that we have gathered in community here to look within ourselves more deeply. In our busy, anxious and bleeding world, I feel it is a beautiful and astonishing commitment that we have made being here to be together, to share, to discuss, to investigate and explore what is certainly one of the most challenging, difficult and yet potentially freeing emotions that we all experience, of course, from time to time, and which also tears our world apart. In our willingness and courage to face our fear, we are, I feel, certainly warriors. We are crusaders for more love and less fear, both within ourselves and outside of ourselves. What we do then here tonight together is that important. We come to listen, we come to learn, we come to hear our stories of fear in the context of meditation. And hopefully we will witness how we have stumbled, how we have fallen, how we've triumphed, and how we've dusted off our knees and begun again and again and again. And I feel that if our spiritual journey is true and authentic and sincere, and if we have looked frankly within ourselves, we must have grappled with fear. We must, to some extent, have loosened the grip of fear on our hearts. And assuredly, we've learned much. So tonight, we are here, one another's teachers. And for me, it feels imperative that I, that we, listen carefully. It's vital that we listen to the wisdom that is gathered here for unbridled, unexamined, freewheeling fear certainly crucifies our spirit and keeps us so distant, separate, and removed from one another. And the far cry from the love, the peace, the joy, and the ease that is our birthright. The consequences of not engaging or taking responsibility for our fear are, I feel, dire and so far-reaching. As I think most of you know, I grew up in South Africa in a beautiful home in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg. It was a neighborhood for white folks. And as I grew older, the political heat intensified and the walls around the garden of our home grew higher and higher as the years passed by. There was great fear abroad in our land. Soon we had huge cast iron fences uh, on top of our walls and the gates were monstrous and behind them often there were fierce guard dogs barking at anyone who passed outside. Our home had burglar alarms and all our windows and doors were alarmed as were those of all our neighbors. 
And so our neighborhood at night became a series of sirens going off from time to time for various reasons. We effectively imprisoned ourselves. And within the grip of this terrible hysteria, we imagined the awfulness of the danger lurking beyond the safety of our walls. The brushstrokes of our national anxiety and fear within us painted a picture which scared the living daylights out of every man, woman, and child in South Africa and certainly in our neighborhood. There's a wonderful author, a South African Afrikaner, his name is E.M. Kutsia, and he wrote a book called Waiting for the Barbarians. And this book is a wonderful metaphor for fear, and it's based on his experience of growing up in South Africa and his experience of the violence and suspicion and terror birthed by the system of apartheid, the system that separated people. This is a quote that I had in my book from Waiting for the Barbarians. He says, last year stories began to reach us from the capital of unrest among the barbarians. Traders traveling safe routes had been attacked and plundered. Stock thefts had increased in scale and audacity. A party of census officials had disappeared and been found buried in shallow graves. Shots had been fired at a provincial governor during a tour of inspection. There had been clashes with border patrols. The barbarian tribes were arming. The rumor went, the empire should take precautionary measures, for there would certainly be war. Of this unrest, I myself saw nothing. In private, I observed that once in every generation, without fail, there is an episode of hysteria about the barbarians. There is no woman living along the frontier who has not dreamed of a dark barbarian hand coming out from under the bed to grip her ankle, and no man who has not frightened himself with visions of the barbarians carousing in his home, breaking the plates, uh, the plates, setting fire to the curtains, and raping his daughters. These dreams are the consequence of too much ease. Show me a barbarian, and I will believe. would be way beyond the scope of this one evening to explore all the ways in which fear impacts our life. Perhaps on another Sunday night sometime in the future, we can continue the journey that we begin tonight. I would though like to perhaps focus on a few of the fears. And the one that I feel is most crippling for most people is the fear of those parts of ourselves that we have deemed unacceptable. Our shadow, if you will, our darkness. In fear, we keep at bay all we have not accepted, all that we do not like, all that we suspect must be lurking inside of us. And in the clutches of this war, 
this conflict with ourselves, we become, of course, very afraid of the truth of those parts of ourselves that we do not accept. We understandably are then terrified that others might perceive the horrible truth lurking within us. So frantically, we attempt to hide the unacceptable as we fearfully scramble to assemble the self-images, the labels, the persona behind which we can hide and feel safe, secure, and breathe a little easier. In fear, we imprison ourselves in these self-images and these masks. For we human beings, it seems so difficult to feel insecure and vulnerable. How would it feel to you, say tonight, here together, to be absolutely visible to those sitting around you on every level, visible in the world? No pretense, no deep, dark secrets, nothing to be ashamed of, just living the naked and simple truth, warts and all. If you like me, there is a part of me that recoils at this notion. I sort of clam up, seize up, want to protect myself, or at least some parts of myself. And regrettably, within the grip of this fear-filled non-acceptance of ourselves, within this shame, the scenario saddens and becomes more complicated. We fear that if we are truly seen, people would of course hate us. They'd not respect us, they would judge us, and they would not love us. So we recoil back into our cast-iron presentations. We may become Pollyannas or clowns. We are alive to some degree and not authentic to the truth, the whole truth of who we are and of what is happening inside of us. And now comes the most insidious part, all of this originating in a fear of ourselves. This insidious part, for here it is that we not only tear our own hearts apart, but we unwittingly run the risk of wrecking our relationships and the world around us too. For now, sadly, behind this facade, we project the fearful non-acceptance of ourselves outward into the world and onto those around us. And within the grip of this fearful projection, we are convinced that others hate us, they judge us, they dislike us, they vilify us, they want to hurt us, and of course, they don't accept us. And all the while, the source of this madness, the origin, lies really in the end, most often within us, unexamined. Born of our fear to accept the whole truth of ourselves, the shadow, what we have decided is unacceptable. And so in this projection of our fear, our barbarians we create, we create our enemies, the scapegoats upon which we can bestow 
blessedly all that we are personally uncomfortable with and what we will not accept within ourselves. And so often collectively in this wild projection into the world, we as a species will bomb faraway places and create enemies all over the planet, ostracize island nations. We'll blame the victims of abuse perhaps and judge those who manifest in their lives those things that we are most afraid of within ourselves. We deprive the poor, we marginalize the sick, and are intolerant of those who are different. And so often, this whole catastrophe is foundationed in the end in a fear of parts of ourself unexamined and then projected outside of us with disastrous results. There's one further heartbreaking consequence of constructing our personas behind which we project and protect our stuff. And that is that we increasingly must turn to others for their approval, for their validation, for their acceptance of us. We have, after all, conferred upon them a power over us. And in doing so, we jettison all healthy, robust self-reference and inner affection. This entire catastrophe is most usually born of a fear of those parts of ourselves we may struggle to accept. And yet, as we do accept more and more those parts of ourselves, perhaps with the help of meditation, perhaps in other ways, our shadow must become less perilous and our darkness a little lighter. As we begin to flex our wings and fly in the face of those fears that have kept us in prison for so long, we must discover a decreasing inclination to seek validity outside of ourselves. Coming face to face with our shadow in spite of the fear, in spite of the fear, we begin to liberate ourselves from the projections of our power onto others. We no longer are surrounded so much by enemies on every front. We, are, we simply don't need them any longer. We have ceased the war within ourselves once and for all. And projecting fear hither and thither becomes a ludicrous endeavor that we now blessedly lay to rest. In examining and taking responsibility for our fear, we at last return home to ourselves in kindness with deep respect. We live boldly. We move to the edges of acceptability within ourselves and engage the fear that assuredly is there. We no longer turn against parts of ourselves by denying who or what we are. We no longer search beyond ourselves to justify our self-worth. We begin to know beyond a shadow of doubt that what we bring forward from shadow into light 
will save us from the fearful madness we once knew. Nothing more than befriending and understanding fear will do. What is unacceptable within us? The other fear that I'd like to just explore for a moment is all the, is the fear associated with our bodies. There are so many different kinds of fear interwoven into the fabric of our relationship with our bodies. In meditation over time, as we bring awareness to every aspect of our experience of living in a human body, we must come to see that on every level there is change happening. The breaths, as we saw, come and go moment to moment. They have a beginning and they have an end. The elements in our body, in the text, they talk about the four great elements of fire, air, earth and water. They too arise and vanish moment to moment in this examination of the truth of our bodies. Even our pains, which once seemed so solid and fixed and immutable, in the light of awareness now begin to dissolve, to arise and to pass away. Nothing is fixed. There is just transitoriness. Nothing permanent. As much as we yearn for stability, if we truly open our eyes to the truth of the body, there is no stability in sight anywhere. This insight, though difficult, scary, and terrifying, must come in the unfolding of the meditation practice or at some point in an examined life. There are times in the meditation practice when this change, this experience of the change, is vivid, indisputable, relentless, and microscopic. For me, when I experienced this for the first time, it was shattering for me to realize that what I placed my confidence in, what I identified with most, what I depended on, in the end, had no enduring substance. There wasn't anything permanent to be found anywhere. There was just dissolution and change happening, ceaselessly, moment to moment. My body, in truth, was just energy, changing relentlessly without end. And I feel that for me, until I totally and unequivocally accept this truth. I cannot be free of the fear associated with my body. There's this wonderful image I have of a film of Martin Luther King when he was in Chicago during the civil rights 
uh, rioting there, and he was in a huddle with Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson and a number of other guys, and there were bottles flying around and bricks, and there was violence, and there was a lot of fighting. It was terrifying, and a television reporter stuck his microphone into the center of the circle and said to him, how can you come here? How can you do this to our city? Look at all the violence that you brought with you. And King turned to this guy and said to him, I am here simply to bring the truth out into the open. And I feel that this essentially is what meditation is all about. Until we get the truth of our bodies into the open and see them as they really are, until we do that, we are to some degree at war and in conflict with ourselves once again. We are attached to something that we hope will never change, and this pipe dream tears us apart. It's a terrifying relationship. Our resistance to the non-acceptance and the inevitability of our aging, our aches and pains, our illnesses and our mortality must leave us terrified and fearful once again. Physical pain then must to some degree shatter and undermine our sense of bodily security. Growing old leaves us feeling deprived and frustrated and terrified. And intimations of approaching death feel like an annihilation of some sort. And so our relationship with the miracle that is our bodies is then also to some extent riddled with fear too. And within the grip of this fear, the experience of life must be impassively contracted. We live a vigilant, self-protected, circumscribed kind of life, circumscribed by the fear of a death that is inevitable. The Buddha spoke often in his teachings two and a half thousand years ago of death and he gave a lot of discourses to the monks and nuns that gathered around him during his lifetime and he encouraged them to come face to face with their mortality. Not to scare the living daylights out of them, not to condemn them to another prison of fear and terror, but rather he knew that a fullness of life was impossible unless we lived that life with a full appreciation of its finiteness, of its mortality. He used to send these nuns and monks, and there are lots of really scary stories of uh, these people going into the charnel grounds, which are these um, burning guts where they would take bodies in India, especially along the Ganges River, which is a sacred river, and they would burn the bodies there out in the open. And if the, the person couldn't afford a burning, they just used to plonk their body there and just leave it. And it used to decompose and the animals used to feed on them. And these guys used to go in there, not for some macabre or morbid reason, but just to look and see the irrevocable truth for themselves. That what's going to happen to them ultimately is going to be exactly the same as what's happening there. That we have to 
and that we must die. And yet the fear of accepting that is so great. I spent uh, a long while uh, in the Burmese forest monastery. I ordained as a monk. And at this forest monastery, we did a meditation practice called meditation on the 32 parts of the body. And what we did, the monks and nuns living in the woods, it was wonderful. We, we did this practice where we focused on a different part of the body every day. So it would be the hair of the head, the nails, the teeth, the skin. These are these classic definitions. And then we went on to the fluids, you know, and it got real chirpy, you know. It was, you know, pus, blood, sweat, tears, you know, etc. All through these 32 parts of the body. And we'd repeat them day after day, night after night. And gradually what began to happen was what previously had felt solid, it became an experience, a constellation of evanescent change, just these rapidly changing sensations, moment to moment, an experience that this was nothing more than energy moving. And this was just from looking carefully and frankly at the truth of what this body is. One night, we were taken, there were about 12 of us, nuns and monks, we were taken to a nearby university and we were taken to the Department of Anatomy and uh, we went to this big hall. We, we'd all been meditating a lot so we were very quiet and we each sat down beside a high table so we were sitting here, there was this table next to us and on each table was a big envelope with a zipper around, a big black envelope. And the head nun who took us said, well, we want you now to open the zipper. And I opened the zipper, and lying next to me was the body of this woman. And I looked at her, and she was lying there, and she had an earring on her ear, and her toenails were painted. And she was young. She looked as though she was about my age. I was 31 or 32 at the time. And... And then I got up and went to the other side of the table and she had been dissected, so she'd been cut in half. And in that instant, it was such a blessing for me. It was like an illusion exploded in my mind. I saw that I'd been relating to myself and other people from a perspective that was just a fraction of a millimeter deep. I saw her skin and I saw this miracle within her. And it was like I could never ever and have never been able to relate to my body in quite the same way as I did before. It's just skin deep. You know? It was a real blessing and a real privilege to do that. And while we can't go to the burning guts and we can't see bodies as they do in India, just have them lying around in the street, we're so protected here in the West from death I feel that he does challenge each of us to come closer to the fact that there is death happening all around us all of the time. And our protection from death is a violence that we do to ourselves because we are hiding ourselves from something that is true. For me, living with AIDS, and coming face to face with my mortality to the degree that it's been possible and I certainly haven't gone anywhere nearly all the way. There's one further thing that I've discovered relating to the importance of looking and grappling with fear. There is a vital, intoxicating, and I feel breathtaking reason 
to engage the fear of death, the fear of our mortality. For me, coming face to face with the fact and the of the inevitability of my death has unleashed an alchemy of my heart, which ironically has birthed all the peace, joy, love and contentment that I always prayed for. What I feared so much, my death, my dying, had simply and remarkably also held the key to my happiness. So this is the second fear, the fear associated with our bodies. We've looked at the fear of unacceptable parts of ourselves, fear of our bodies. There's so many other fears. There just isn't enough time. There are the fears of the unknown. There's fear of emotions within us. Fear of emptiness, of who am I? Who dies? Who loves? They're the phobias that so many of us have in the experience of living our lives. There are also the good, healthy fears that are important and it's it's imperative I mention these too. Like I have a fear of putting my hand in the fire, it might get burnt, you know, or a fear of drinking poison. These are good, important fears. There are times when our discriminating wisdom cautions us with the arising of a useful fear. Take care, Gavin. I have a fear of swimming in polluted waters, for example, and I have a caution about, say, having a picnic in a radioactive. Uh, dumping ground. So there are important fears too that um, have value. And the Buddha in his inimitable way spoke a lot. He spoke almost as much about good fears as about the difficult fears that we've been speaking about earlier. He spoke about the fear of not hurting one another. He said it was a terribly important fear to cultivate, that it mobilized us, the fear of, say, perhaps not perceiving the truth, the fear of not living with love and kindness. He said these are good fears, these are valuable fears, and fears to be cultivated, and fears that must inform our life. But really tonight, we are looking at that particular quality of fear that really contracts our hearts, that cripples and diminishes our spirits, and that definitely denies us the love that we all yearn for. So how do we work with fear? This, I feel, is a challenge that really goes to the heart of the spiritual journey, to the heart of meditation. And the first thing on this journey of grappling with fear is, of course, just to recognize the fear. It's not always easy. For me, one of the most important insights in meditation, and it was quite a while after beginning meditation, was actually recognizing the fear in the first place. If I was so familiar with the energy of fear that I couldn't simply see it. It was in the middle of a retreat that I opened into this interlude of unimaginable peace and great love. 
It was an altogether new experience for me. I f it felt uncanny, unreal, and quite impossible, really. And then the truth revealed itself. I was experiencing life free of a fear that had defined my life always. I was simply so used to it, I never was able to recognize its presence. That fearless moment felt like a step into another world for me. Over the years of meditation, I've come so much to appreciate that this process of looking within ourselves in this way is one about de developing a deeper sensitivity to ourselves and to life. With awareness, we come to relate to our minds and bodies with a subtlety that was never before possible. And this subtlety is what enables us to open to the deeper and deeper levels and workings of fear, even on the most subtle and imperceptible places. Recognizing the fear. Where do you experience fear? And I don't ask this rhetorically, I ask this really directly. Where do you recognize, where do you see the fear in the body? Is it in the gut maybe, in the groin, the neck, the face maybe? the forehead, the back, the knees sometimes even, whole body tight. And how does it feel? How does it feel when you've discovered where it is that you experience the fear most predominantly? Does it feel perhaps tight, hot, stabbing, tense, tingling, pulsing? Sometimes for me when I experience fear and terror, it's almost like it's icy cold. Sometimes it's bubbling up from my groin. And how's the mind? What is the climate in the mind when there is fear? Is it sort of pushing away or is it rejecting? Is the mind shrill and tense? These are all the facets of awareness of looking to the truth of what is happening. And then also understanding what conditions fear, what gave rise to it, what birthed the fear, what precipitated it. Was it a thought or a sound or a memory or another emotion or a sensation in the body or maybe something that you saw or whatever, a recollection. And then your breathing, how is your breathing affected by fear? Does it become more shallow, labored? jumpy or short. In meditation, we bring a careful awareness to every aspect of fear. Without judging it or rejecting it, without indulging the fear in any way, we eventually must befriend the fear. I love that word, befriending the fear. We welcome the fear. It's as if, if I'm in conversation with the fear, I say, I see you fear, you back again, welcome. Let me die of this fear, just, okay, I'm willing to hang out with you. Old friend, it's nice to see you again. Really befriending it, not tangling, not fighting, not saying, oh, woe is me, and certainly not being fearful that fear has arrived again. Let me know you fear completely. Becoming 
okay with fear in our lives and in the world so that we can live our lives in spite of the fear that might be there. Until we know, recognize and are familiar with all the workings of fear in meditation and in our lives, we cannot loosen its grip upon us. So this is the first stage, recognizing it. And then we move into the second and final stage, which is of course the stage of acceptance. This is really sacred ground, where there is no aversion to the fear, where there's no fear of the fear, where we don't head for the heels, but are willing rather just to hang in there with what's happening. We develop a tender relationship, willingness just to be present, to not collude with the fear, not investing in the fear, without escalating the fear with our indulgence, not creating barbarians, rather responding to the fear and not reacting from it. We become gentle, kind and patient in our response to the fear that arises in meditation and in life. We see as we grapple with fear also that there are times to engage, to come forward, to be present with, to explore, to hang out with the fear. Those times when we are courageous and when we are bold. And very definitely there are times when we are as courageous as bold when we decide to back off. If we're tired, if we lack strength, if our mind is scattered, if our concentration is poor, it is wisdom and an act of love to pull back, to rest, to renew, to stabilize and to regroup, and perhaps then return to the fear when we feel stronger and clearer and more balanced later. Quoting the Buddha a lot tonight, I don't usually do that, but when he talks, I often listen. <laughs> and he also said that loving kindness is an antidote to fear. He said that fear cannot exist in the presence of love and in the presence of kindness. Extending loving kindness to places of fear within us to fearful situations to perhaps people around us who are in the grip of fear could also be a skillful and loving and kind response to this energy. I really do believe with all my heart that ultimately everything in meditation, in life, every aspect of my experience must in the end be workable, no matter how tenacious or challenging the situation might be. Even when the fear is colossal, I have these days an unshakable faith that in the end, eventually, there will be a way. It must be workable. I am no longer a choiceless victim of the fear that once defined my life. In closing, 
I'd like to contribute some lessons I've learned, some tips maybe that I have to offer to the dialogue and discussion that I hope will follow. I've learned to have great respect for fear. It can be a very strong emotion, it can be tenacious. And having patience with fear, I feel is a very, very important ally. I've learned to touch fear lightly. And if it gets too strong, to definitely pull back. Sometimes if the fear is really strong, I go out and garden or I take a bath or I go for a run. I ground myself. I become realistic of how much I can do, how far I can go in any moment, and then decide what I will then leave for another time. I also try to bring humor into the situation, into my dance with fear also. I have this rather frighteningly insane little game I play these days. I'm a little shy to share it, but I guess being shy is just being a little fearful, so I'll do it anyway. And I play this game when my anxiety and fear really feels so it's getting the upper hand in my life. Living with AIDS, I certainly have no opportunity for torturing myself with incessant wrangling worry and anxiety about this crazy and absurd life I feel I'm living. And so I play this little conversation game with myself, which goes something like this. I imagine there's almost as if there's somebody sitting on my shoulder and says, excuse me, Gavin, excuse me, please. Are you there? You know, yeah, yeah. Here you are, Gavin, fearful and anxious again. You're obsessing about things once more. You're losing your sleep. Snap out of it. Now listen, listen to me, kid. And then he says, is there anything that you can do about this problem? And then if I say yes, then the voice says, good, hallelujah, no need to worry, stop fretting, just do what you can as soon as possible. And if I say no, there's really nothing I can do about it. Then he says to me, he says, okay, good, hallelujah, no need to worry, stop fretting. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. And it's really helped me. Because it's so easy to get wrapped up in these self-perpetuating cycles of fear that just get worse and worse, and they really are crucifying. So finding a way for things to be more workable is really the essence, it's really the heart of meditation practice. I've also learned not to expect and wish the fear to go away. It's really a big thing there. Just to be really, truly, wholeheartedly willing to be present with it every time it arises. I've seen it's also important to be aware to the resistance of fear. Where do you feel resistance to fear? In the mind and in the body. I try to separate as much as possible the drama and the story and the embroidery from the fear itself. Can I bring that pure attention that we 
explored in the meditation practice to the pure experience of the energy of fear. For this really is the possibility of freedom, to be simply present and undefined by the arising of fear. And then as open as much as possible, when possible, and as clearly as possible to the truth of fear now. I feel I, and if I may say we, must all consider this deeply for our life and our love and the well-being of our planet depends on it. Thank you. <laughs> I'll speak for no one else. I just wanted to thank you so very much. Gavin, uh, I met Gavin in the middle of a health crisis uh, that I had in my life. I was petrified of my death and um, didn't know anybody to talk to about. I felt very scared. I was going to do a favor actually for him, get some work done, and I had to call him and tell him I couldn't do that. And when I called him, he was very sick himself. He's on the end of the phone and very congested. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I told him why I couldn't do it and everything. He climbed out of his own moments. He was trying to create hospitalization and do this and that. I don't know if I can do No, no, go right ahead. And said the very same thing to me. He said, you know, when things like this happen to me, I add it to my life. I don't make it simple. I can't believe that what kind of God could this possibly be? Add it too. This is terrible. I have to get rid of it. But anyway, we had a conversation. I got off the phone. I thought of it for a really long time. As I thought about that, and I was really going petrified of you know, what was to come about and everything I was going to have to go through in order to live. And uh, I sat down and I just sort of started bringing the help I didn't want to close it. I could say it anyway, but I played this little game with it and, and connected it to myself. And when I did that, it's just like you say, you walk into another dimension, there's, there's a near life experience of reference, there's a near life that happens to you, you, you go through this door. And it was all right. Everything was all right. I wasn't like all gnarled up and everything. I was going to still have to face the very same thing I was about to do, but not with sickness over here and wellness over here. This is really where I wanted to be, and you know, let's get rid of this. Everything was sort of merged together, and everything was possible. And when Buddha says everything is possible, you can't live that. And the first time I sort of lived that idea, everything was possible. And when Buddha says everything is possible, you can't live that. Everything can't be possible with these two piles. There has to be one whole. Like a shadow with you were my teacher at the time, and I've given it to so many people since then. It just has a life of its own. And it's precious. I feel, you know. The thing about the meditation practice that is most inspiring to me is that, as Linda said, it has the potential of becoming 
the absolute way in which one lives every moment of one's life. And you know, it's not just a meditation trip on our cushion or Sunday night for a couple of hours here together. The, the intoxicating possibility is of living with awareness and love and acceptance moment to moment with everyone along relentlessly. I mean, it's just it's so exciting. You know? It's real living practice, potentially. Okay, um, yeah, everybody's been talking about fear of death so far, but for me, um, I'm more afraid of life in some ways than of death. Um, I guess the biggest thing that I'm working on right now is like, um, or that's coming up for me a lot, is like fear of disappointing people. Like, people that ask me out, you know, eight times in one day, or like, you know, just, I mean, it's just little things, but, um, but I don't know, sometimes when it gets really built up over time, like, um, the person trying to ask you out eight times in one day looks like Terminator to you. <laughs> and like, yeah, <laughs> I really get scared, you know? Like, I really feel the fear thing when I have to tell somebody, you know, stop or no or, you know, don't do that or just, you know, like fear of saying no, fear of disappointing me. Do you feel that, that you're able to, um acknowledge the fear and respond undefined by the fear, or do you think that your response is coming out of the fear? Um, like, how do you mean? Well, um, I mean, you know, I don't think the issue is to get rid of fear, because, right. you know, fear always arises. Right. The possibility is of knowing the fear well enough and befriending it sufficiently so that when it does arise, you can say, oh great, there you are, and I'm still going to respond to this situation, not defined by the fear. I've acknowledged it, right. but I'm not a victim of it. And so I was right. wondering how that is. Yeah, I think that I can do that in certain situations. Like, most of the time, I'm not afraid of the person, like, coming and attacking me or anything like that. I'm just afraid of disappointing them, of saying no, or, you know, of, of um, destroying their expectations. That's what I'm afraid of, more than any personal harm or injury or whatever. It's, it's pretty... Does anyone yeah. have a response to that? Can you speak up a bit to these things? I think it relates to what um, Daniel was talking about at the beginning. We're all so afraid of not getting loved. So we're projecting our insecurity so often. So afraid that we don't want to be saying no. one needs to be careful not to to interpret what I said as saying if somebody's being nasty to you we have to take responsibility for their nasties like we created their their behavior because there is some thinking that goes along those lines what I'm saying is that it's worth looking at if you think that you are constantly disappointing people and not living up to their expectations it's worth considering a look at 
whether you have expectations of yourself that might be outlandish or, or harsh. You know, you know. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. It's, it's a question of following my own inner voice and what other people are telling me. You know, it's not, I don't know, it's kind of a hard situation sometimes, but. I mean, it's been getting really clear for me, like, um, it's mostly when, I mean, see, that's what I have difficulty with in the first place, deciding if I'm being outrageous or if the other person is, you know, being sort of placing outrageous demands on me. And um, it's been getting really clear that it's usually, in those times when I'm having that fear, it's usually the other person is placing some kind of outrageous demand on me. And I really don't feel that I want to live up to that or that it's beneficial for me or the other person to live up to that, but I can't say no. Like, that's... Um, it's, it's sometimes, I've heard it said that um, we live in a society where women need to be afraid to walk outside at night. And uh, there's reason that that's said. It is statistically and realistically dangerous in many places for women to be outside alone at night. Um, and as a man, that's hard for me to, to even appreciate because I've never experienced that. But I guess what I, one of the things I'm putting together from what you said is that it's, there's certainly reason for women to take precaution at night, but the fear is something that they can look at and deal with. Not that they should... I mean, the society should be different. They should be able to go outside without any danger and not have fear, but given the situation, uh, there's a reason for the fear, but there's the fear can also be examined. I mean, that's an aspect of what we were talking about. Awesome. Um, my latest experience with fear is, is about the onion and peeling away the layers. And um, I don't know your name, but I was so Michelle. Michelle? Yeah. <laughs> um, when you said, I just can't say no. I think about times when I feel that I'm not sure why I, don't, I can't take the next action, but I need to look closer at it. I need to examine it more closely and say, why can't I say no? And <coughs> step into the fear. I mean, um, it's, it's not easy, but I find when I can step into it and be with it, and as you say, embrace it, then it loses some of the, the power. Um, I, I, I was stimulated by something else. You said, oh, I know what it was about, about women at night. And stuff. The other thing I was thinking about was how I've learned really to respect my fear more and more, but I've also, in respecting it, um, feel like there's a point at which I can respect it but not give it energy. Because I can respect it, it loses 
some of the, the charge and the pull. And in terms of being a woman alone at night, uh, that's happened to me in mean, situations where if I, if I were not mindful of going a step further, I could cower, I could just not want to be out at night. And instead, I tried to envision, envision light, bringing light in the midst of feeling that that danger is there and it's good to be mindful of that danger. Um, but I think, it, I think we can really, um, we can really give a lot of power to that negative aspect if we go too far into it without realizing that there is a, there is a place in which we can turn that energy around embrace it, respect it, and, and send it light. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that where we can be present with the fear without being caught and yeah. embroiled in it? Letting it take us over. Um, when you're talking about this fear of upsetting someone for me has been something I've struggled with my whole life. Um, when I was just a little, little kind kid, uh, my father had a heart attack and my mother developed a very good way of controlling seven of the children by this line of, don't upset your father, he'll have a heart attack and die. <laughs> um, and it's taken me a very long time learning with myself that that I don't die from my feelings and people around me don't die when I upset them. And <laughs> this fear that we carry around of, of protecting each other from our own emotions um, seems to me a way that that inhibits genuine interaction. Um, and I know it certainly inhibited my having any genuine interaction with my father. Um, I don't know if that helps you at all. Yeah, it strikes a chord. I was having a discussion with a neighbor today, and she, she said to me, Oh, my mom's coming to visit. I said, Oh, that's cool. She said, I said, You know, and. Um, I'm sure she's going to be excited to meet Sally. So she said, oh no, my mother doesn't know that I'm a lesbian. So, so, so I said, oh, she said, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, I'm 45 years old. She said, but my father, when I told him when I was 19, he, he, um, he asked me not to tell my mom because he was afraid she'd have a heart attack. <laughs> when I told my mother, and then I said, well, now we must tell my dad, my mom said to me, don't tell your father you'll have a heart attack. <laughs> and I ended up going to the doctor, telling the doctor, and my doctor called my father and mother in, and he told my dad that I was gay, so that he could be on hand. <laughs> Whatever happens, right? but without prolonged, unavoidable suffering. 
inescapable in the world suffering. And I live in fear of that happening again and being unable to do anything about it. Um, would anybody like to respond to that? She's worked at Could I respond like personally to that? Um, um, the intimations of this love and ease and peace that I'm beginning to experience in my life, in spite of the fact that on paper my life's a complete disaster, you know, I mean, I should be, you know, I should be a mess, but the intimations of this miracle that by facing the truth of things, we birth the possibility of this peace and love and joy in spite of how difficult it is. That gives me the courage to hang in there with the suffering because I have no doubt that finding some balance and clarity and composure within the fire of what is difficult about being a human being is really the cauldron and the birthplace of our potential. And what it requires is a willingness to be simply present and know the truth of what is happening. Like Martin Luther King said, get the truth out in the open. In the meditation where we just be present, you know, Another time, if we do an evening on pain, we'll just be present with pain. Not the drama of it, not, oh God, my knee, oh, I'm going to be crippled, oh, I'm never going to be able to get up again. Just the rising sensations, the truth of what's happening. Just being present, stripping the situations just down to the bare essence of what's happening, for me, is an act of love. And it's there that the possibility of a miracle becomes real life. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I've lost over 50 friends to AIDS and some of their deaths have been terrible and dreadful. And I comfort myself by saying that no matter what, whatever is going to happen to me is going to be served by me sitting in meditation and just training my mind to be more present and my heart to be more loving that whatever's going to happen is going to be served by what I'm doing now. So I give all my attention to this moment and the way I live it, rather than worrying about what's going to happen, you know, X number of days, months, years away. And so that's how I make it workable. Because when I start torturing myself with all the projections into the future, I'm a, I'm a wreck. And I have to be a wreck because I've seen it happened so many times. That's the only way it's workable, is a loving awareness now. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so what if your mind is happening? I know Well, I mean, there's a difference between, I mean, when you talk about having an awareness or an ability to be aware during what if your mind is simultaneously, like by depression, Dementia or something where you're not able to use your mind to help yourself. You lose not only the body, but mind. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, 
we're all susceptible to dementia and in AIDS there's AIDS dementia which is a possibility. Sometimes I think I'm demented. And ask my friends. <laughs> I'm either demented or a drama queen, one of the two. You know, there again, I'm going to respond in, in, in a similar vein. I feel that whatever happens will be served by how love, how much love, and how much kindness, and how much truth I'm living now. You know, there's this whole teaching of karma, which is vast and huge, which means that everything that we do essentially has an effect. And so what I do now is going to affect what happens. And really the only place of power is in the choice of how I live this moment. And the future will take care of itself. We can torture ourselves in a myriad ways of things that might happen to us. And I've done it, you know, that's when this guy comes and sits on my shoulder and says, hey, stop it, you know, wake up. Just to piggyback on uh, something that Michelle said, and possibly what you said. Um, I came across a uh, Japanese therapeutic teaching some years ago that I found to be very useful in relation to fear. And it has to do with uh, control. And I, the Japanese point out that um, that you can essentially divide control up into two major categories. One is um, how much control you have over what other people, how other people, can, do you have control over what other people think? And the answer is no. Do you have control over how other people, what other people's emotions are? The answer is probably no. Do you have control even over how other people behave? And the answer is probably no. Maybe you have some influence, but generally we don't have a lot of control over that. And then you turn the lens on yourself and you ask yourself the question, do I have control over my own thinking? And as we all know, the answer is probably not real. <laughs> um, um, do we have control over our emotions? And the answer is again, maybe sometimes yes, but usually maybe not. Emotions come and go. And finally, the last uh, question you ask yourself is, do you have control over your own behavior? In other words, how you respond. And that's the one place where you have leverage. That is the one thing that you can do. And that's probably the only reliable uh, area to work with, is your own response to whatever is showing up moment to moment. I just want to make sure, um, before we move from you, done? Sure. Great. Thank you. I just was thinking uh, the question of yes and no, and some years ago teacher once said to me, before you can't say no, you can't really say yes. And I think that's, and it's all you can train yourself, like make a little game out of it. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to go overboard either. Yeah. Yeah, we know you're gonna say no, you're gonna say no. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I've been struggling with the fear of being marked as the foreigner. I was born in Poland, I grew up in Poland, but I've been living in this country for 23 years. And it's, the moment I open my mouth, I'm identified as the foreigner. And a lot of projections of otherness and other spirits. And I can feel it 
noticing the shift of energy out of heaven and I'm struggling. One of the functions, one of the sad functions of fear is to separate, is to isolate, you know, is to, is to make one feel disconnected. Well, I think fear, um, the energy of fear works in that way in our psychology, you know, it's, it's a way of separating. My one response was, it's true that there are a lot of foreigners in this room. You know, I'm a foreigner. Michael's a foreigner. We're both from South Africa. I know there are other people from far away here. So again, I wonder, if the shift that you are perceiving in people's response to you it's worth looking at a little more closely whether there's maybe a way that you're coming forward that 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 shift might in some measure be happening in yourself that there's a kind of a way in which there's a reluctance to come forward rather than the perception of of a shift. For example, my response when you spoke was, was, you were very interested, very engaged, you know. But all responses, people Well, do you know, let me tell you, when I was diagnosed with AIDS, one of the most painful immediate consequences was the response that different people had to my diagnosis. People that always hugged me, no longer wanted to hug me. People were scared to kiss me. People were afraid to talk to me about my diagnosis. It was like my whole world changed. All of a sudden, everybody was going through their dance with what I was dealing with. And there were times I felt like a leper. You know, so it was like I fought all my life to, to come out of the closet about being a gay man, being a white South African which was another thing, you know. I spent my first 10 years away from South Africa too ashamed to even say I was from South Africa. And so eventually I came out being a white South African, I came out being a gay man, and then I was diagnosed and I was back in the closet again because it was really difficult for me to live the truth of who I am visibly. And so, Well, do you know what happened? It was, I got to a place, you know, it's very similar to what Michael was saying. The only thing that I can do in the end, I really love that, was that I can only take, I only have control over how I respond to situations. So, for example, somebody came to me the other day, a neighbor who I told, you know, he moved in with his girlfriend, and uh, I told them that I was living with AIDS. And they said to me, oh, we want to know everything about that. Please educate us. And I said to them, I said, I'm not in the business of AIDS education. I said, if you want to be my friend, 
you must find out everything and then come to me with that understanding. And in a way, it was, you know, it's like I felt, you know, great, that's sort of feisty. You know. But, you know, and it helped them because, you know, they did what they needed to do. I didn't feel like I had to take responsibility for them, but I'd also honored myself. I'd like said, I am who I am. I'm not ashamed of who I am. And I will come forward in the truth of who I am. And if you don't like it, you bounce. <laughs> and that might sound uncompassionate, but I come from a very different experience of life. You know, I come from an experience of feeling very ashamed of being gay, very ashamed of being a white South African. and more shame. And so it really, the answer was a change in myself. And I'm not necessarily saying that that needs to happen for you, because I don't know you, but I'm just offering you my experience. I don't care a damn if somebody's uncomfortable with me being gay. I don't care a damn if they're uncomfortable with me having AIDS. They've got to deal with it. And if they can't deal with it, they're missing out on a great opportunity to know a pretty good guy. It's their problem. And I say that with all the love and kindness in the world, you know. So then, in response to prejudice, is this assertion of formation of the self? Well, does anybody else want to respond to this as well? I mean, yeah. Okay, yeah, um, I was at. And I was in LA and the Dalai Lama spoke there and he spoke to this exact same question. <clears throat> and he said, um, there are two kinds of, um, I, I don't know if I'm gonna do this right, but I'll try. <laughs> um, he said, there's two kinds of sense of self. One that can be used positively and constructively to help yourself understand and to help others understand. And that needs to be developed. You need to develop a positive, healthy sense of self in that way. And then there's the other kind, which is like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm wonderful, I'm better than everyone else, and that's kind of a negative, destructive kind of sense of self. And that can be done away with. That's, and he said, yes, there is definitely benefits to developing a healthy sense of self-esteem. That's what he said. He did a great job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say something too yeah. about that. Is I also think we have to forgive people who may not who have to use that difference in order to create power difference between you and them. Because, because your difference is not hidden in a closet. It's not a secret. Only some people may know about it. Every time you speak, you, at least by your own, what you just said to us, you tell us of your otherness. And some people will use it for power purposes, and other people will just go, oh, it's so interesting, or wow, it doesn't matter to me. But I find myself just forgiving people for having to be in that battle with themselves. Because it's their battle, really. Your otherness, in terms of everything that's about you, is so special. I mean, just like this woman over here said something about, I'm a suffer. I've seen a billion people suffer, and every one of them suffer differently. They suffer in their own suffering. And uh, some die of cancer, and every cancer patient that dies doesn't die in their own death to go through. So your otherness is something that's just 
wonderful about you. And people or others that can't see that, I, I personally just sit there and go, well, I'm going to spend some time sending a little meta here. I'm really sorry they have to be out there in battle because if they added me to their life and all of my happiness, it would be a bigger world. I mean, we're all in this world. People are trying to separate things. You can't do it anyway. You cannot do that. You cannot separate out anything that exists in the universe. But people will try, and when they do, they're just not at a level of awareness that, that includes them. And when they do, they themselves to separate I frequently um, meet people from other countries and and very often I, I feel that the fact they're from other countries makes them uh, potentially interesting and uh, perhaps desirable to engage. So there are positive aspects to it too. And I think, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, there are definitely positive I'd like to just interrupt for one moment, please. I noticed to my great surprise, <laughs> My, my mindless surprise <laughs> that it's, 20, it's uh, 12 minutes after 9 o'clock and um, I, I would be happy to remain a little further and us have more discussion but I also wanted to acknowledge that there might be people that needed to leave and you know uh, when uh, it's 9 and so um, you can continue for a while but also and Gavin, let me add to that, but I'm his sort of caretaker. <laughs> um, Gavin is still vulnerable, and we need to just be very respectful of his turning you know, his energy. Sorry, thank you. No. Let's do another few minutes for whoever wishes. Is there anybody that hasn't spoken first that would like to say something? Jim, could you talk about? Phobia, fears, for just a little bit, just because they seem so absolute that nothing you said helps at all. Right. <laughs> they seem so absolute that nothing I have said or anyone said. I was joking. Oh, but yeah. But I, well, but I ask it because of their immensity. Yeah. While you're thinking, yeah. Um, one of the things that um, that I've learned about uh, phobias, Jim, is um, that a lot of phobias are biochemically based, and um, when you change the chemistry in the brain, and it's quite possible to do that, it still means that uh, phobias dissolve. They literally dissolve out there, and um, therapy can be helpful. But um, sometimes it's not the therapy that does it. It's purely by a No. I think the important thing about meditation as we speak about it with the enthusiasm that we do is to not give the impression that meditation is the way and the only way and that it necessarily is going to be able to resolve all problems. And I think part of the discriminating wisdom of meditation is to know when to 
say, make choices such as Michael mentioned about a biochemical intervention in a situation. Working with phobias, you know, I have this experience that I think I would like to share. It happened on a retreat in Washington State where this woman uh, was terrified of being out of her home. And she came to this retreat and had been coming to retreats in the past. And what she did was the first retreat, a friend drove her there. She remained five minutes and went home. And then she was able to come for an hour and went home. And when she came for an hour, her doctor had given her medication that enabled her to be there. But as soon as she walked into the room and there were all these people, she had to leave and she went home. And slowly, with awareness, she was over the years able to spend longer and longer at the retreat using awareness to work with the fear to the point where she then had to make another intervention. She had to leave, she had, to, she had her antidepressant, she had her anti-anxiety medication. And so meditation in conjunction with other things can be a very powerful response to phobia. You know, I've had some phobias that I think I've been able to work with effectively on retreat. And it has to do with not being terrified of the phobia. I mean, fear of fear is a terrible thing. You know, fear comes up and you think, oh my God, I'm going to be crucified, this is going to happen, I'm going to end up in hospital, I'm going to end up having to take the medication. And to be able to see that response is just extra again, and to go back to the fear, and to go back to the idea that created the fear. And so the meditation practice helps one see the psychological process, if you will, of a thought giving rise, you know, in the talk I said, what gave rise to the fear? A thought gives rise to the fear. The fear then, say, gives rise to a memory. The memory gives rise to more fear, which then gives rise to a contraction in the body that then tightens the back, that then gives rise to more fear. Beginning to see the simple process going, moment to moment, one thing conditioning another, gives one a measure of freedom. One no longer feels a victim of this process because one begins to understand it. But working with fear requires a certain sophistication of mind, or not sophistication, but a, a degree of concentration and awareness because fear can blow you out the window, you know? And so, you know, I'm very tentative in my response only because I'm very respectful of how colossal fears can be. And um, I think meditation can be helpful, but I've also seen people who have tried to say meditation is the way, you know, the Buddha, he had the answer to everything and, you know, I will do it come hell or high water, when actually a really skillful and loving response would have been to maybe meditate and do a biochemical intervention or meditate and be in therapy, which is certainly what I've done. One of my great fears is being alone and being left alone. And as I approach the change that I'm about to approach, part of my asking for help is not so much the packing or the moving as having to be alone at the termination of something and having to go to something alone. And I have experienced quite a bit of terror 
in recent weeks since I found the apartment because I don't know how I'll make the transition, but I find as I get closer to it, it's not that it's not terrifying, it is. And I appreciate the company or any you know, presence, but also that I live each little piece as a little piece. And when I have the opportunity to get together with a friend or have a phone conversation or chop a task into a bite-sized bit that I can actually handle in an hour or two or a few hours, it goes much better than if I think in terms of, you know, oh my God, from now on, I do not have a base or I do not, or I have to do all this by myself. In fact, there are times when people will be present. There are times when there will be some help. Uh, it's hard, but the moment-to-momentness helps. Uh, the things that I can do for myself and the social things that I do matter. So I don't feel as if I am totally without resources. And I congratulate myself on the times that I use the resources well. But I think a lot has to do with the size of it. And I did rather the same thing recently when I was in Utah and I hiked into a canyon and it began to get dark and I had to get myself out. And I knew that in these canyons, there be mountain lions and there be other things that come out at sunset. And I simply started walking and walking and walking and singing and talking and doing whatever I could to, you know, be alive and be active. And I got myself out of the canyon by 8 p.m. when it was really getting dusky. But taking the steps and doing it each moment and that's the hardest thing because I think the real danger for me is depression and despair. And to keep active is the hardest. Elise, you wanted to say something and then I think we're going to need to end. It's a big question. Why don't you toss it quickly in the middle and see what happens. When you think about wanting to go back to the part of your talk yeah. About the practice of... I thought I'd get away with that. <laughs> the practice of, of um, and use of, of confronting the fear of dissolution, of the dissolution of the self. Um, and I've really, really been thinking about that and anticipating that I wanted to be doing this work very, very much, but our whole society is so near the opposite, you know, this whole capitalist thing of that's about what we solid there in life, you know, house money or we accumulate things and I mean struggle all the time, I feel like to get to remove myself, you know, because I don't really that's not really my journey is to want things solidity. It's the other journey to wanna to wanna get closer and closer and closer to that understanding. Process of 
I venture to suggest my time? I think you know. <laughs> and we will be at some point in the future looking at that. I don't think we do have time to do it. Thank you. My only response is that, as Michael said, we each have our own journey to make and how we, how we align ourselves with what is true, which is what you're saying, you have a thirst for an experience of what is true. How we do that is going to be individual. We all get a blossom in our own incredibly lovely way. And I don't say that uh, in a grandiose way. We, we all are opening into a loveliness that is our potential. And that's what you're thirsting for too. And how that's going to happen, I guess, is dependent on the degree of your thirst. And it seems to be happening just by the circumstances of your life, which I'm familiar with to some degree. It's happening. And I honor it. Well, <laughs> nice way to spend a Sunday night. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.